The reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and, and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters. Says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises dear friends. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have great promises before us this morning in your word, but also great challenges. And we pray now that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would hear and receive into our hearts the truth of your word, and that by your help we might not only hear but believe, not only believe but obey. Help us, we pray, in the name and for the glory of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, do please be seated and uh, come with me to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, the end of that, the beginning of chapter 7, uh, that Ian read, uh, I have to say Ian read it uh, beautifully there, great uh, feeling. It's always uh, good uh, to get that sense of uh, God's uh, word as living and we've had that uh, this morning. So uh, do find it on your device uh, or in uh, an actual physical Bible. They used to have these things with pages in. Uh, some of us still use those. So uh, however it is, get yourself in front of God's Word today. And welcome to you, uh, especially if you're here for the first time, if you're joining us online, uh, or if you're here for uh, one of, uh, to support uh, one of our three candidates uh, for baptism or affirmation of vows later in our service. Who are you? And you think about what is it that makes me, me? What comes into your own mind? We live in an era where uh, one of the very popular things to do uh, is to dig deep into your own ancestry. Uh, There are lots of websites available. I happen to look at ancestry.co.uk. This is not an endorsement, uh, but an extraordinary number, billions of records uh, have been stored there. And the invitation enticing you in to come and sign up and find out uh, who you might be related to. Uh, Stories of how discovering uh, the uh, strange and wonderful, inspiring people uh, that turn out to be part of our family tree uh, lead people to do new and bold and exciting things. Where do we come from? Where do we belong? What does it tell us about our identity? How might that change us? 
Now, I've never done it. Uh, it looks quite interesting. I have really got time to do that sort of thing. But uh, I guess as an Australian, it would probably reveal that I'm a bit of a mongrel. Most of us are uh, who grew up in that part of the world. But whatever your own story tells physically about who you are and where you're from, the Apostle Paul brings us God's word to us about who you are if you're a Christian, about who we are as God's people. Uh, And here, he says, uh, this is far more important than any of the wonderful stories we may tell or discover about our human origins. Because when we hear what God has to say to us about our new identity in Jesus Christ, both as individual believers and collectively as his people, well, then we will find here great and precious promises that begin to change us as we live our lives, as we walk on the path towards life in all its fullness that Jesus brings to us. So who are we as Christians together? Paul gives three answers uh, in this passage. We are God's temple, we are God's people, and we are God's children. Uh, These uh, three truths should change us. Change the way we think about ourselves, change the way that we relate to our fellow Christians and to those who do not share our faith. The reality is that the blood of Jesus defines who we are far more profoundly than our own unique human bloodlines. Our new identity in him tells us who we are and releases us and steers us to live with an infinitely greater significance than anything we may discover on Ancestry.co.uk or other such websites. Uh, There is a new identity and purpose and power here in Jesus than anything we will discover or know in any of our earthly relationships with family and friends. Gifts of God, though they are. We feel this uh, most keenly uh, as we come to faith or as we're renewed uh, in faith. So as King Fai and Cory and Sin Ting are baptized or renew their vows this morning, uh, we know that for them uh, this is a precious moment, uh, the symbolic embrace of this new identity in Jesus Christ or a rediscovery of that identity in Jesus Christ a fresh hearing of the calling of what it means to be God's temple, God's people in God's family. For all of us, uh, if we're Christians here today, we need to know or perhaps to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not yet a believer, perhaps you've come to support one of our candidates or uh, you've just come in to find out a bit more of what this Christianity is about. Maybe you're tuning in online uh, and uh, you were looking for Aldi or something and you've ended up at St. John's Hartford. Well, stick around. We may not have bargain price baked beans, but we have the words of life. If you're not yet a Christian, then what does this mean to you? It means this is who you can become in Jesus Christ. And this is the new purpose that you could embrace if you would come and receive that call to come and trust and follow him. But for us who are Christians, well, let's listen in and let's hear who we are and what God has called us to be and to do. First, we are God's temple. We see that halfway through verse 16. We are the temple of the living God. 
Paul is writing to Christians, the believers in Corinth, and he says to them, we have this identity of being the temple of God. Now, of course, he's speaking, speaking metaphorically. We are not literally stones. We are not literally built onto the temple mount in Jerusalem. But spiritually speaking, we are the temple of the living God. It's the first time Paul has used that language explicitly in this second letter to the Corinthians, but he used it in his first letter, and that helps us to understand a little of what he means. So, for example, and he says uh, to the Corinthians in the earlier letter, we have it as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, don't you know that you, plural, you collectively, are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Friends, if we are Christians, then we are the temple of the living God. That is, God lives here. He lives here amongst us, in our midst. We belong to him and he will protect us. That's the first time Paul mentions the temple. And if we're Christians, then that isn't simply a personal choice. To be a Christian is to become a part of something bigger. It is to become a part of this great edifice of God's temple. And God's spirit lives not just in here, although that is great and precious, but amongst us. We are called to honor the Lord in each other, for together... We are the dwelling place of God's spirit. Together, we are the temple of the living God. I emphasize that uh, in Paul's language of the temple because it is a corporate uh, image first and foremost. And still there are people uh, from time to time who'll say to me, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to belong to church. And it's the same pattern of thinking of saying, I play football, but I don't need to belong to a team. Well, you can practice some skills, but you can't really play football without belonging to a greater entity. Of course, you can trust Jesus yourself in your heart, and that is wonderful. But you can't live out who you're called to be in isolation, because we are the temple of the living God. We are the place where God dwells by his spirit. And yet that language, though, corporate, is also personal. Paul also says in that first letter, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. So yes, the temple image is collective, but it is also individual. And we know that God has loved me, and we can say that every one of us as we come and trust in Jesus Christ Because you were bought at a price, the price of God's one and only son who hung on a cross for you. And the imagery is uh, powerfully uh, practical. Therefore, honor God with your body. You individually, as well as us corporately, are a dwelling place of God's spirit. And therefore, the way in which we use our bodies must be honoring to him. So as we come back to this context in the second letter, he returns to the language and expands the contrast between being in God's temple and not. And outside, he says, uh, that is what we are by nature, 
is the place of wickedness, of darkness, of Belial, of unbelief, and of idolatry. I've underlined the words in the passage that is open before us. In our natural state, before we come to Jesus Christ, this is who we and all humanity are. We are wicked. That is, uh, we instinctively refuse and reject God's right to be the ruler of our lives. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live in the domain of darkness. Uh, Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It can combine the next two. Uh, Belial uh, is uh, just another name for Satan. Uh, Paul calls him earlier in this letter, the God of this age. And back in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, The God of this age, that is Belial, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Here then is Satan doing his darkening work. And as he does that, so we refuse to believe. Then the last word, idolatry. Uh, That is uh, a devotion to that which is not God as if it were God. In the ancient world, it was easy to spot. There were physical temples as there are in Eastern religions to this day. In our culture, we don't have so many of the physical temples. And yet, as Paul Christley puts it elsewhere, in this materialistic culture, we need to know that greed is idolatry. My self-created identity is idolatry. The heart which does not worship God will worship many and various things, but all of them come under this condemnation of idolatry. That is what it is to be a human being born into a fallen world. That is what we were. But now, Paul says to those who've come to Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God the temple of the living God inhabited by his living, cleansing, animating, forgiving, renewing spirit, lovingly purchased at the infinite cost of his own son, whose blood was shed for you, that you might be taken out of these things and brought into the kingdom of his son. And the contrast there is uh, striking. Now, these are the words that characterize God's people, those who belong to Jesus Christ, who are his temple, righteousness, light, Christ, and faith. Our righteousness here, uh, not as a reward or achievement, but as a gift. Uh, Paul said a little earlier at chapter 5, verse 21, uh, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our story as Christians, though it's often misheard, and sometimes we mistell it, is not that we have discovered a pathway of increasing righteousness or religiosity or goodness, but rather that God has come into our wicked lives and has given us as a free gift a righteousness that belongs properly and exclusively to his son. He's taken all my wickedness And he's born it in the cross. And he's transferred to me as sheer gift a righteousness that is by faith and grace alone. 
So we now have righteousness that has been credited to our account. We have light, not from within ourselves. No, look within, there is only darkness. But we've received the light of Jesus Christ. We do not preach ourselves, Paul said earlier in this letter, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Christ himself, no matter how many promises God has made, they're yes in him. And so through us, the amen is spoken to the glory of God. We're believers because the light has shone, the righteousness has been credited. And we cry out, Lord, have mercy. And he gives us forgiveness and a place amongst his sanctified people. We are, therefore, the temple of God. None of it achievement. All of it gift, righteousness, and light through Christ, who is the object of our faith. And what does that mean? What does that mean practically for us to be the temple of God? Well, the whole thrust of the passage is moral and ethical. Uh, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for we are the temple of the living God. Here, uh, Christians uh, have disagreed with each other over the years about the implications of what this means. And we need to be humble and gracious as we try to apply it to ourselves uh, and uh, help one another to understand. I don't think it means that we should separate from Christians with whom we disagree about important but secondary things. Uh, Some people who I really respect do think uh, it means that. And I won't fall out with you if that's the way you take it. The contrast in this passage is between believers and unbelievers, light and darkness, those who worship Christ and those who are under the sway of Belial or the devil. And the picture that Paul has here is drawn from the Old Testament, a commonplace in the ancient world. But in the law of God, we read this, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. And it's that picture uh, where one animal is put under too great a strain because he can't keep up with the other uh, and the other pressing ahead uh, uh, and is frustrated also. Or they try and diverge uh, because they're simply not designed to be together. That image, forbidden in the law out of kindness to animals, is now applied to us as a kindness to those who are the dwelling place of God's spirit. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers and what he means is this we Christians individually and collectively must not so unite our lives and purposes with non-Christians that in the end we bring dishonor to our Lord and Savior and compromise our primary allegiance to him Perhaps the most obvious example makes the point most clearly. Uh, Jesus said this about marriage. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Uh, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The word for joined together in the original language is literally yoked together. Jesus says uh, that when a man and a woman are married, God yokes them uh, together in a common, lifelong uh, and heartfelt endeavor. 
And Paul says to us, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Primary application is very clear, isn't it, even if it's hard to hear. Paul clarifies his teaching in his first letter to the Corinthians. If you're a Christian married to a non-Christian, don't separate. God really has yoked you together. But if you have freedom to choose, if you are a Christian and you are single, then do not marry a non-Christian. Do not be yoked to an unbeliever. It is an act of rebellion against the Lord. How can you yoke light and darkness together? And not only would it dishonor the Lord, but it will bring you a world of suffering as well. Now, that isn't the only application. Uh, I have known people to be so yoked to their careers that it leaves them absolutely no time or energy to serve their sisters and brothers in the church community. I've known people so yoked to their sport uh, and uh, their commitment to that on a Sunday morning that they begin with good intentions, but within a few years have drifted away entirely uh, from any obvious profession of Christian faith. In the end, we have to work out the details for ourselves. So ask yourself, it's a question for self-examination, is there anything that I am so bound to that I cannot live out my new and true identity as part of or as the temple of God? As I say, we need grace and latitude with one another as we draw the lines in different places. But let us not take that as an excuse not to hear this plain word of God. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for we are the temple of the living God. Second, we are God's people. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Well, again, when you look at those ancestry websites, uh, you can find uh, this percentage is of that ethnic group and that percentage from that one over there. And each of us would have some uh, unique mix uh, of where we have come from genetically. But what is 100% true of you, if you are a Christian, is that you are one of God's people. And that matters far more than any ethnic difference that may be found amongst us. Now, the scriptures tell us in that great picture of the new heavens and the new earth uh, that there will be those from every nation and language and tribe and tongue, but they're united around the throne of the Lord Jesus, bringing him glory, for it is belonging to his people that in the end is the only thing that matters. We sometimes say, and rightly so, there is only one race, the human race. Well, even more so, there is only one people of God, and it is those whom he has gathered to come around his son, trusting and worshipping him at the center of their lives. Now, here where Paul quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, Uh, He uh, does so from uh, six different uh, places, and we haven't got time uh, to uh, look in any detail uh, where they come from, but uh, he's painting a picture that has been long foretold uh, in the law and the prophets, uh, all speaking of this great purpose of God to gather a people together who will be his very own. 
And as he gathers us together from the different people groups and the different strata of society, uh, as he gathers us together, young and old and men and women, he brings us into one family, one people. Think of family in a moment. Here we're thinking of being one people, one church, one faith, one Lord. As Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So whether you're from Hong Kong or even Australia, perhaps a few from England or wherever you come from, whatever particular ethnic mix uh, may be there, whatever our individual stories, our one song is that we are one people, a people drawn together by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and given a new identity and a new purpose in him. And look at the privilege we have. We know him. I will live with them and walk amongst them. It's intimate and personal. Our story is that we've come to know the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. It evokes that picture of the Garden of Eden uh, before sin was exposed and destroyed, uh, the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We long for that day uh, when that will be fulfilled, when we shall see him face to face. At the moment we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Even now, uh, this is the God who lives with us, who walks amongst us, walks alongside us in all the traumas and trials of our daily lives, assuring us that we belong to him and he belongs to us. I will be their God and they will be my people. He is not far from you, Christian. Sometimes it feels as though he is, but rather is right alongside, even in the valley of the shadow of death. This is our privilege of being one of God's people And just as there is privilege, so also there is calling, a calling to be a distinct people, separate and holy. And if we just combine this with the language in the earlier part of the chapter, we had the language there of being in common with or fellowship, harmony and agreement. And no, those things don't exist between believer and unbeliever, light and darkness, Christ and the devil, but they do exist amongst us. We have a common life. In Jesus Christ, we have a fellowship with one another because God is as close to my friend and neighbor in the congregation as he is to me. We have harmony. I don't agree on everything. Of course we don't. Uh, But there is a deep, intrinsic harmony of the spirit and around Christ. We have a common faith and therefore a common love and a common life. Uh, There is agreement uh, on the authority of the word of God and the lordship of Jesus and the meaning of the cross, and our calling to live out that faith in love. Uh, Now, what we have in common here is precisely because we are God's people together. We are a people who uh, are called out and gathered together that we might truly belong to him. Again, what does it mean, uh, we say, to come out from them and be separate, to touch no unclean thing that he might receive us. Again, Christians have differed over the years in exactly how we've applied these words. And once again, we need grace and uh, tolerance and latitude and learning from one another 
as we try and apply uh, what Jesus calls being in the world but not of the world. It's not that we can be taken out uh, of the world. Uh, That would be a foolishness and quite the opposite of what God intends. And yet though in the world we don't live according to its values or standards because we are the people of God, not the people of the world think of this uh, contrast which I think uh, helpfully makes the point of just how difficult it can be to work out Uh, we know in that most famous verse in the Bible that God loves the world God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life John wrote that down in his gospel and that John goes on to say in his letter uh, do not love the world or anything in the world and we say, well, John, we've read the gospel and it says God loves the world. and We've read the letter and it says do not love the world. Which is it? And of course it's both, isn't it? We are called to love the world in the way that God loves the world. That is in generosity and self-sacrifice and bearing witness to the grace and forgiveness that he offers to everyone who will receive Jesus Christ as their saviour and lord and yet we are called precisely not to love the world in the sense of self-indulgence and extracting from it at the cost to other people that which is to my selfish gain and glory alone john says more fully in his letter all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life is not of the father but is of the world and it's not simple to try and hold those two things together. Uh, The great monastic movement of the medieval period, uh, Luther uh, uh, said of that, you can take the monk out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the monk. It's not a matter of physical uh, separation from the world in which we live, for our hearts go with us wherever we travel. Uh, We need uh, the grace and kindness of the Lord to teach us what it means to be his people, loving the world as he does in sacrifice and service and refusing to love the world in indulgence and self-gratification. And then thirdly, and finally, we're God's temple, we're God's people, we are God's children. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't this the sweetest promise in Scripture? And as we come and put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are adopted as God's own sons and daughters. It's not our instinctive uh, inclination at all. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And they rejected him, just as we do by nature and inclination. And yet, as John says in that great prologue to his gospel, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then you truly are a son or daughter of God. And no one can pluck you out of his hand. Yes, you may disappoint him uh, and need correction by him uh, and constantly need his forgiveness. But you will never cease to be his child. He teaches us. The Lord Jesus teaches us, doesn't he, to call upon God as our Father. We'll do that later in our service, to seek the forgiveness of our sins, to ask for his help that we may seek his kingdom, that he would give us all we need and we would glorify him in all that we do uh, in his name. 
I will be a father, you will be my sons uh, and daughters. And so therefore, as the psalm says, uh, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. We will cry out to the Lord precisely because he is our loving father who will never reject us. We will cry out to him for the grace and strength to live honorably as his children. Since we have these promises, see the logic here, it's not pursue holiness and then God will reward you by making you his child. No, no, you are his child since we have these promises. Well then, therefore, let us seek his help that we might live in a way that honors him as our holy and heavenly father. Since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence or literally out of fear for God. This is not an obligation laid upon us uh, that we should be unwilling to receive. This is rather the pathway to live out the very character of being the children of God. And do we have daily battles with sin and the world and the devil? Yes, we do, and we'll have them until we come home to be with him face to face. But the fighting of those battles is the sign that faith is living. And the increasing victory, at least in some areas, in certain seasons, a sign that his spirit powerfully at work in us. And the hope that one day those battles will be over and we shall be in every fiber of our being what we are already by faith as those seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. That coming day will strengthen us to live in the light of the calling that is given to us. In baptism, as we shall hear in a few moments, God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. To follow Christ means dying to sin and rising to new life. I'll see three people make those promises today and pray for them, but all of us can be a part of God's temple. Know what it is to be uh, his people. Know what it is to be his children. The gracious gift of life is held out to us if we would but receive it in Jesus Christ. And having received it, well then let us know who we are and give ourselves to becoming that reality in our lives. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. Although by nature, instinctively in our own hearts, there is wickedness, darkness, the captivity of the evil one, unbelief and idolatry. Yet out of grace, sheer grace alone, you have called us to your son, to know righteousness, to know light, to know him as we walk by faith and not by sight. Please, Father, would you bring some for the first time into your kingdom today. Would you strengthen those of us who are yours but who feel weary and self-condemned? We pray for our three candidates. We pray for all of us that we would know that we are the temple of God, the people of God, the children of God. And so cause us, we pray, to turn from our sins, to pursue holiness without which we shall never see you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.